Well, I invite you to turn, if you'd like, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14. Matthew chapter 22. All right, before we read the passage and look at it, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, in the life of Christ, uh, He spoke so much teaching. And we are thankful that it is recorded for us by the Holy Spirit moving men to write, that we can, some 2,000 years later, benefit and hear. So we pray that you would give us ears to hear what it is that you know we need to hear, things that we might not even be aware of, and we pray that you be powerfully at work in us by your Holy Spirit. For Jesus' sake, amen. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my ox, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives. This morning, beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here Today we're listening. Uh, this uh, parable is fairly easy to understand. I don't think uh, uh, many of us will have any difficulty having understood it. I'm guessing most of us understand it crystal clear right now. And as we walk through it, I trust we'll discover there's nothing hard to understand, but it can be a hard one to take. At the end, there's a punch. All of Jesus' parables have at least one major punch. And this one is indeed a uh, massive punch. And as we walk through the parable, I want us to see just three things. There's an invitation to the feast, fairly simple. There are two responses to the invitation. We'll sort of flush out what those responses are. And then there's a surprising guest at the end, a sort of twist in the story. So the invitation, the two responses, and then the surprising guest. And I'd like to begin with the invitation. Notice the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And then he did it again. He sent other servants out. Tell them that they're invited. See, I prepared my dinner. Come to the wedding feast. 
Now, just by way of details, uh, this would have been arguably the greatest event in the kingdom. If you have a king who's got a son getting married, uh, this is a big event. The whole nation would be aware of it. Now, we're not quite on par with this. We're Americans. We live in a democratic society. The president is what he is. We all think, yeah, if we don't like him, we'll just vote him out. But if you're in a kingdom and you've got a king and you're a citizen of that country, then when the son of that king gets married, the whole nation's put on notice. Everybody knows about this and everybody would love to be invited. <laughs> put me on the list. I want to come. Now, clearly everyone in the kingdom couldn't come. Indeed, the king is king over the whole kingdom, but not everybody in the kingdom can fit in the wedding party of his son. So there's an invite list. People are invited and the invites were sent out. Now, in this setting, what's interesting is if you read the language of it, when the servants are sent out, they're saying, hey, uh, it's time to come as if there was a previous invite and there likely was. There were usually two rounds of invites. The first said, save the date as it were, right? The king's son's going to be married. Here's about the time it's going to happen. And so just put that on your calendar so that when it's ready, we'll tell you and you can come. And so that invite had already gone out. And so now what's going on is the time's here. And the servants aren't sent out to announce the first invite, sort of a save the day thing. They're ready to announce. They're going out to announce, hey, it's time to come. <laughs> like everything's ready. The whole wedding feast, it's on. So drop what you're doing, come, like travel over here, come on and enjoy this feast. And oh, what a privilege it would have been to be on that list. Imagine not being on the invite list, right? That'd be heartbreaking. But imagine if you're on the list and you get an invite, you want to be there. Who wouldn't want to come and feast for a week or two at a time on the king's dime? Who wouldn't want to come and party, as it were, in this great party of parties? And so heaven here is likened to a wedding feast. God, the king, is the one doing the inviting. The wedding is the wedding of his son, Jesus Christ, to his bride, the church. And invites have been sent out. And indeed, you'd want to be on that list. And if we're wondering, where do we ever get the notion that heaven is like a wedding feast of the Son, Jesus Christ, to his bride? You can flip over to Revelation 19.7. Let us rejoice and exalt and give God the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. This will be a party to end all parties. The wedding supper of the Lamb, when Jesus Christ marries his bride, the church, is going to be incredible. It's an event you don't want to miss out on. It will be simply unbelievable and amazing. The party of all parties. It's almost impossible to imagine, but Jesus is asking us to imagine it, and it will one day be here. So the invite goes out, and I want us to notice that there's two responses to the invitation. The first response is in verses 3 through 7. He sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they wouldn't come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, tell those who were invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. 
But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized the servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. So he called the guests to the wedding feast with his first round of servants, and they wouldn't come. Verse 3, they would not come. It's not that they couldn't come, they wouldn't. The second group of servants went out with a message from the king. Hey, everything's ready. Dinner's on. Oxen, fattened calves, they're all slaughtered. <laughs> come on, we're ready to party here. Come to the wedding feast. And then verse 4, yeah, come to the wedding feast. It's a divine summons. I want us to catch that. God's not saying, hey, I think it's a good suggestion to come to the wedding feast. He's saying, come. It's a divine command. It's the command of the king. Come. <laughs> it's ready. And we're told in verse 5, they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. That was the response of some. Back to life as normal. King's wedding feast? A wedding feast to honor the son? <laughs> Got better things to do. And so they went back to their usual business. And some of them ratcheted up a notch higher. Verse 6, they seized the servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. This is a complete defiance of the king, right? These are traitors. And the king, rightfully so, in verse 7, we're told, was angry. king was angry, sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. What's going on here? This is a parable Jesus is giving about midweek. He's about two days from the cross. He's in Jerusalem. He's been appealing to the Jews over and over, the religious leaders especially, believe in me. He's highlighted John the Baptist's ministry. Who's it from? From God or from men? And he's trying to test them and put this in front of them. He's been calling them to repentance. John the Baptist called them to repentance and faith. Constant invites all throughout the ministry of Jesus and all throughout the ministry before him of the prophets. And what did they do? What was the response? What was Israel's response? Kill the prophets. John the Baptist is beheaded. What are they going to do with the son? They're going to kill him really soon here. That was the response. And so the king says, I'm going to send my troops. Remember, he's the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. I'm going to send my troops and destroy their city. And some have understood that to be the destruction of Jerusalem, AD 70. I think that's spot on. God bringing judgment upon the Jewish people for rejecting his son, Jesus Christ. I want us to think about something before we move on to the second response to the invitation. Every excuse, going back to a farm or business, every excuse for offered for not attending the wedding supper of the Lamb on the last day is a horrible excuse. There is no good one. When the king has said, the feast is ready, Ours is the duty to come. The king has said, here's my son. Ours is the duty to go honor him, right? Through faith and following Jesus. It is never acceptable to turn down an invite from God the king to honor his son. God is calling all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17.30. Paul in his sermon in Athens. God commands all people everywhere to repent. God's not suggesting it. He's not saying, yeah, this is, you know, one of many good things to do. He's commanding people 
I command you to repent. I command you to honor my son, believe in him, get to the wedding feast. And so refusing to believe in Jesus is what? It's telling the king, go fly a kite. It's looking at the king who has power over everyone in his kingdom and defying him. For it's understandable that it doesn't go well with those who defy the king. It doesn't in this world, and it certainly will not when the king is the triune God. It wasn't that the people couldn't come. It wasn't that they were too busy to come. Rather, they wouldn't. They didn't. They just refused to come. They care about so many things in this world, right? And this is true down to our very day. So many people today will work 12 hours a day for 50 years to secure earthly wealth and money. They'll go to gyms and doctors to care for their physical health. They'll pursue hobbies which they enjoy to care for their mental health, but they will hardly spend an hour thinking about their eternal well-being and about their presence at the wedding supper of the Lamb to honor the Son. How can you not care about this? It's the biggest party ever. It's the celebration that every human being really wants to be at or should want to be at. How can you not care about it and come up with excuses for it? Well, there's a second response to the invites going out, verses 8 through 10. He said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. Those who invited, they're not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Notice the language of verse 8, they weren't worthy. Those invited were not worthy. What's he getting at? It means that they did not believe in Jesus. Jesus is the one who makes a person worthy to attend the feast. They were not worthy. They wouldn't accept the invitation. The invitation is what makes someone worthy, as it were, accepting Jesus Christ. So he told them, look, go to the main roads, the thoroughfares of the ways, the thoroughfares of the crossroads of the highways. Go to the masses, right? Think highways, think interstate highways, think 12-lane highways. Go out where everybody is and invite all those people to come in. As my, invite as many as you can find, both good and bad. Now, this is likely a reference to those who are morally good and those who are morally bad. As in Jesus' day, so in our day, right? Among those who don't believe, there are some who are morally good, right? They're fairly decent human beings to have as neighbors, even, they don't, even though they don't believe. And there's some who are morally bad, really wretched people. Their depravity comes across in a whole different form than those who are concerned about what others think of them. Doesn't matter what their character is, doesn't matter what they're like, the good and the bad. Another way of saying it is just go out and invite everybody that you lay eyes on. If they have a pulse, invite them. If they are a person, invite them. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. That's the picture of the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's just filled to the full, and God's going to make sure it's filled to the full. Now, this is the picture of the gospel going out to the Gentiles. And I'm guessing, I don't know all of our backgrounds, that that's probably 100% of us in this room. Maybe there's some of us with Jewish background. But that's the gospel going out to the Gentiles. This is the great commission of the church envisioned before it even started. 
The invite is no longer primarily to the Jews, but the invite is to the masses, to every human being with a pulse. Does he or she have a pulse? Yes. Then invite them. They're invited. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Every warm body is to have the good news proclaimed to them. Every human being, every single one. Ann Wilson, uh, my musical tastes are changing with my daughters now. They're on to Ann Wilson. She has a song called My Jesus. He makes a way where there ain't no way, rises up from an empty grave, ain't no sinner that he can't save. Let me tell you about my Jesus. That's exactly what's been happening among the Gentile world. There's no sinner that can't be saved by him. And we're those who are called to go out and tell everybody about Jesus Christ as we have been told. Idol worshipers from Athens get saved. Acts 17, a hardened jailer in Philippi gets saved. Sex-addicted folks from Corinth get saved. Artemis worshipers from Ephesus get saved. On and on we go. The masses are invited in, and they come in. And God's house is filled. And this parable teaches us that that's God's interest. That if there's a group of people who won't come, like the Jew is rejecting Jesus, then the gospel is going out to the Gentiles. God's house is going to be full. Heaven's going to be filled up, beloved. He's filling heaven with the rich and the poor, with those who walk and those who can't walk, with those who can see and with those who are blind, with those who can hear and with those who are deaf, those whose spines work, those who are quadriplegics, those who are saved at a young age and have been spared from much of sin's devastation, and those who have messy lives filled with abortions, drug use, alcoholism, gambling, prison sentences, and sexual immorality. God is filling his heaven up. God is way more gracious than probably you or I are. Well, he is more gracious than you and I are. He's filling his heaven up with all kinds of different people, just from the mass population. And these people came in, these Gentile sinners. So there's an invitation to the feast. There were two responses, one of rejection, one of coming in and honoring the invitation. And then this is where the parable, you could say, really lands home. You might say this is Jesus' main point right here at the end, the surprising guest. Verse 11. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen." The banquet hall is filled. The king comes into the hall and he sees a massive sea of people and all the people have the appropriate garb on as he looks them over. But he noticed among this massive sea of people, there was one person that didn't fit. And notice what the king saw. Verse 11, he had no wedding garment. Now, on the level of the story in the parable, this simply would be unacceptable. If the king invites you to the wedding of a son, you better dress appropriately, figure it out. You don't show up in clothing inappropriate. And we're not told whether the people were supposed to go home and get their own clothing and dress themselves up or whether the king was going to provide them clothing that they all had to wear. Both could have been the case. 
But what is clear in the parable is that all the other guests had the right clothing on. So clearly, it wasn't as though the person who didn't have the right clothing couldn't have gotten it. No, the expectation is that they could have, but they didn't. It's not as though the person who was improperly dressed didn't have access to the proper clothing. He did. He just didn't put it on. He came dressed as himself. So the king approached the man and said, verse 12, very simple, friend, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? How'd you enter? How'd you get in? Can't you see that everyone else here is dressed very differently than you are? What's going on here? And notice what the man said. He didn't say, oh, there wasn't a garment for me or hair for God. Can I go home and get it? He said nothing, speechless, nothing to say, caught his own conscience, probably like, yep, I really messed that one up. Nothing to say, beloved. To be muzzled, to stop the mouth, to be kept in check, to be reduced to silence. That's what this word speechless means, to be reduced to to silence. All the reasons he believed he belonged in the feast evaporated in the presence of the king with one question. What are you doing here? Where's your wedding garment? How'd you get in? And maybe he thought he had some really good answers, but they were gone and they meant nothing when you're standing on judgment day before the king evaporated. Romans 3.19, the law speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. The whole world may be held accountable to God. A little bit of a picture, right? When judgment day hits, the law is pulled out. There's not a single one of us that's going to be able to say, yep, I've done really well. And this man found that out the hard way. Yeah, I deserve to be in your feast because of, I guess there is no reason. He's finding it out too late, though. This is someone who accepted the invite, who came in with the crowds, who followed along with their friends and family members and loved ones or others who gave them the gospel. They heard it. They said, okay, I'll join your group. I'll be part of this thing called heaven. I'll do my best to live my life outwardly so that I impress others. But there was no repentance and faith. There was no legitimate accepting of the invite. And verse 13, we're told he was thrown out. The king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. Notice the person wasn't allowed to walk out on their own. They are thrown out. Outer darkness is simply utter hopelessness, completely in the dark and alone and hopeless. It's the complete absence of joy. God is light. Outer darkness is everything not God. Everything horrible and horrendous. He's thrown into the outer darkness. And in verse 13, we're told in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping, bitter grief that springs from feeling utterly hopeless. It is usually accompanied by shrieks brought on by uncontainable emotional pain, so real weeping, the kind of weeping that happens when you are in so much pain, you can't control your emotions, you just weep. And gnashing of teeth, you've all had it before, right? Where you, I don't know what happens, maybe you slam your finger in the car door, and what do you do, right? Grind the teeth, gnash them, squeeze them together, it's literally the grinding of the teeth. Why, because there's so much pain gnashing of teeth in the context of weeping, lots of pain. No human being in this world has ever experienced this. Human beings who have gone through the worst of the worst in suffering in this life haven't experienced even an ounce of what Jesus is talking about in this parable. 
Hell is constant, everlasting spiritual agony and physical torture. It's the bearing of the unbearable. One author described hell this way. There is no way to describe hell. Nothing on earth could compare to it. No living person has any real idea of it. No madman in wildest flights of insanity ever beheld its horror. No man in delirium ever pictured a place so utterly terrible as this. No nightmare racing across a fevered mind ever produces a terror to match that of the mildest hell. No murder scene with splashed blood and oozing wound ever suggested a revulsion that could touch the borderlands of hell. Let the most gifted writer exhaust his skill in describing this roaring cavern of unending flame, and he would not even touch the nearest edge of hell. Or to use the language of Martin Luther, it is of little importance whether a person holds hell to be what, um, what men paint or picture it to be. No doubt, it now is and will be far worse than anyone is able to describe, picture, or think it will be. That's where this person without the right garment was cast. And then verse 14, many are called, but few are chosen. So many are called, right? The outward call of the gospel goes out. Many people hear the gospel, beloved. Millions of people hear the gospel. Billions of people hear the gospel, right? They hear the summons to come to honor the king, to honor King Jesus. But few are chosen. The doctrine of election, interestingly, thrown in here in this passage, in a passage which highlights human responsibility. They would not come. We might say, why wouldn't they come? Well, they refused to. They didn't want to. And also because God hadn't chosen them to come. Now, this is a parable about us, beloved the whole second half of the parable is about Gentile believers coming into the kingdom. And it comes to us as a warning. And the warning is this, not all who claim to actually believe, believe. Not all who think they belong to the feast actually belong. And the issue, the main issue of whether one belongs or doesn't is the issue of clothing. That's what the parable is highlighting here. The issue of what are you wearing? Now, I want to start with what the original hearers would have understood about clothing when they heard Jesus teach this parable. Zechariah 3, verses 3 through 5, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Okay, that would have been in their minds. And this maybe would have been foremost in their minds regarding clothing. Isaiah 61, 10. I will rejoice in the Lord greatly. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. So what would folks have understood about the clothing that everybody in the dance hall and the wedding hall was wearing, but this other one person wasn't? It is clothing given us, to by, given us by the Lord. He provides the clothing. He covers us. And it's the, clo the clothing is righteous clothing, which causes our filthiness and sin to be covered over, to be removed and to be replaced with clean, beautiful, spotless, pure, and perfect clothing. And if I were to skip ahead to the Apostle Paul, which hadn't been written yet, in 2 Corinthians 5 and Philippians 3, we would know that this clothing has to do with Jesus and particularly with being clothed in his righteousness. He's covered me, Isaiah 61, 10, with the robe of his righteousness. Well, how do we get this robe? Where, is the, where do I get this righteousness? In Jesus. 
For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Philippians 3, Paul just says, I, I counted everything I earned dung just to be found in Jesus Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Jesus. So what did this person in the wedding hall lack? The righteousness of Christ. Everybody else had it. He stood in his own righteousness. He dared to come to the banquet as he was, standing in the filth of his own sin. We might say, who are these people? Well, Matthew's kind of alluded to who they are. Matthew 7, 21 to 24. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? The answer to that question is yes, they did. That's a lot. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, let me say this as clearly as I possibly can. We live in a culture of acceptance, right? We are challenged and forced to accept people for who they claim to be. And one of the most egregious sins you can ever commit in our culture here in America is the refusal of accepting someone as they claim to be. Acceptance is the religion of our culture. Reject someone for who they claim to be, call someone out as wrong, and you will incur the wrath of the many. God doesn't play that game. God doesn't care who any of us claim to be. I realize that may be hard to take for our American ears, but it's just the truth. If you think that God will accept you or me dressed as we are in the clothing of ourself, dressed in our self-confidence, dressed in our efforts of being a good person, dressed in our Bible reading and prayer, dressed in our church attendance or in our niceness and kindness, dressed in our external morality, please hear this, he won't. He will pick us out of a multitude of tens of millions of people. We don't have the right garment on if that's what we come dressed in. We'll be kicked out of the feast forever. And I want to highlight something which the parable makes clear as any imposter can hide right now, right? It's easy to do. We can fool each other. We can even fool ourselves. But at the feast where this takes place on the last day, this great wedding supper of the Lamb, God's not fooled. He knows. Nobody can possibly fool him. So if we're sitting here today in the company of God's people, but we've not given our life to Christ, and we're seeing everybody else clothed in something different, they're talking about Jesus and they're trusting in him, and we realize something's off about us, then I urge you and, and, and strongly urge you to, to get this right. Get out of your own clothing and get in the clothing provided by Jesus Christ. Get in his garment, get in his obedience, his righteousness so that on the last day, we can be found in Him. You know, there are people in the world who take great care of themselves. They watch their diet, they routinely exercise, they're both mentally and physically healthy. They live long and full of happiness and good relationships. And yet they continue in the most self-destructive behavior ever known to man. And here it is, rejecting Jesus. 
They damage themselves in this life by refusing him, and so they never know true joy and satisfaction and happiness and comfort and peace and hope. But the most self-destructive part of the rejecting of Jesus doesn't pertain to this life. It pertains to the weeping and the gnashing of teeth that lasts forever. For every single one of us here today, you will not be able to say that you didn't know. No one oozed with more grace and love and kindness and gentleness than Jesus Christ, and no one in all the Bible spent more time warning people of the everlasting torments of hell than Jesus. <laughs> this weird dichotomy brought together in him told us the truth. Why? Because he loves us and because we need to know it. So believe. Where are you? Let me ask all of us in this room, what are we standing in? On the last day, either we'll be standing in Christ and his righteousness, and we'll be partying, <laughs> and it will be amazing. And there will be smiles on our faces because we'll have a heart that is infinitely smiling. And we'll be at a party to beat all parties. But if we show up to that party standing in something that we did, will be kicked out of the party. And Jesus is telling us this, why? So that we'll be clothed in him and at the party with a smile, not being thrown out. So where are you? Where am I? It matters. It's of infinite, eternal importance. Let's pray.